You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 221, The Collier Matthew Raids. Following the entry of France into the war in 1778, British policy in America shifted dramatically. London essentially put the war against New England and the Mid-Atlantic states on hold. They redeployed much of their army to the West Indies, where valuable islands were up for grabs, and also hoped to reclaim a few of the southern colonies, where they expected to find a fair number of loyalists ready to support them. Virginia, however, was not part of this southern strategy. It was a heavily populated state, and officials did not see a large Loyalist uprising there. As a result, Virginia had pretty much avoided being the scene of many battles in the war up until this time. Even in 1779, that was not really going to change. The British were still having trouble securing Georgia, and just making some tentative attempts at South Carolina, as I discussed last week. Launching a massive land invasion into Virginia was not part of anyone's plan. The other part of Britain's plan was to harass the coasts. The British Navy still dominated the seas, especially once the French fleet under D'Estaing sailed for the West Indies. The Navy could attack coastal targets at will with very little danger of retaliation. With this in mind, British planners in New York organized a spring raid in May 1779. Since Virginia patriots had chased off colonial governor Lord Dunmore in early 1776, Virginia had seen relatively little conflict. The British had sailed up the Chesapeake in 1777 in their attempt to reach Philadelphia, but during that time they really didn't stop in Virginia. The fleet had sailed well up into Maryland, and then the army marched off north toward Philadelphia. The lower Chesapeake Bay was mostly free of British harassment during most of these early years of the war. The only water entry into the bay was a relatively narrow area off the coast of Norfolk. The relative peace in the area allowed farmers to grow crops for the Continental Army and produce tobacco for sale abroad. The British now hoped to execute a search-and-destroy mission with a fleet of ships. They would capture or destroy anything of value that they could find in the Chesapeake Bay area. Commodore George Collier assembled the fleet that would be used. Collier, by this time, was the ranking naval officer in America. You may recall that Admiral Richard Howe left America rather abruptly, leaving the rather incompetent James Gambier in command. Admiral John Byron had been second in command and should have taken command, but he sailed off for the West Indies, where his fleet prevented the French from retaking St. Lucia. Admiral Gambier remained in New York but did little. In April 1779, he received his recall orders 
and departed New York for England. That left Captain Collier in command as the senior naval officer in America. Collier was born a commoner in 1738. Since the Navy offered better opportunities than the Army for ambitious men without wealthy and powerful families, Collier entered the Navy at age 13. He served in the East Indies and by age 16 had been promoted to lieutenant. After a decade of service, the officer in his mid-twenties took command of his own ship, a captured French frigate during the French and Indian War. Collier had a good reputation as an effective officer, moving from one command to another. In 1774, he received secret orders that required him to sail to the North African coast. We still don't know what that mission was, but afterward, the king knighted him in early 1775. By December of that year, Sir George took command of the Fort of War gun Rainbow. In 1776, he participated in a convoy commanded by Commodore William Hotham to transport Hessian soldiers to New York as part of General Howe's efforts to capture that city. Over the next two years, Collier operated out of Nova Scotia, raiding American vessels. Shortly after his arrival in Nova Scotia in late 1776, he relieved the siege of Fort Cumberland, thus ensuring continued British control of the region. For more on that, see episode 119. Collier carried out his duties with great energy and enthusiasm. In 1777, he captured or destroyed 76 enemy vessels, including the 32-gun Hancock, one of New England's most well-armed privateers. Following Admiral Gambier's recall, Collier took command of the North American Squadron, He sailed to New York to coordinate with the Army's commander, General Henry Clinton. In planning the attack, Collier worked with Major General Edward Matthew. General Matthew was a decade older than Collier. Born in Antigua in 1729, Matthew was the son of a British officer stationed in the West Indies. At the age of 16 or 17, he managed to acquire a commission as an ensign in the Coldstream Guards a particularly prestigious regiment whose primary duty is the personal protection of the king. Given this duty, there isn't any record of Matthew engaging in combat during the War of Austrian Succession or the Seven Years' War. During that time, he did manage to marry the daughter of a duke. He also rose to the rank of colonel by 1775 and served as a personal aide-de-camp to King George III. As the war in America became front and center, Matthew took command of a 1,000-man brigade drawn from the Coldstream Guards. He received a commission as a brigadier general and sailed for America in 1776 to assist with General Howe's invasion of New York. His brigade served with distinction at the Battle of Long Island and again at Kipps Bay. Matthew personally led troops during the British assault on Fort Washington. The following year, Matthew would accompany General Howe on the Philadelphia campaign. Matthew led his brigade with distinction at Brandywine and Germantown, and the following year at Monmouth. Matthew's brigade then returned to New York with the rest of the army. While there, Matthew received word from London about his promotion to Major General. In early 1778, General Clinton assigned Matthew to work with Commodore Collier in organizing the raid on the Chesapeake Bay area. 
Collier and Matthew assembled a force which included six men of war, Collier's flagship, the Raisonable, along with the Rainbow, the Soul Bay, Otter, Diligent, and Harlem. The fleet also included the Sloop Cornwallis and 24 smaller troop transports carrying nearly 2,000 regulars, Hessians, and Loyalist volunteers. At the last minute, the Solbay left the fleet to be redeployed to a convoy bringing food to the British garrison at Savannah. The rest of the ships, though, left as a fleet from New York on May 5, 1779, headed for the Chesapeake. Favorable winds allowed the fleet to reach Virginia in less than three days, arriving at the Capes of Virginia on May 8th. Supplementing the force were several Loyalist privateers that volunteered to join the fleet. Upon arrival, a thunderstorm forced the fleet to hunker down for a day. The ships emerged undamaged, and Collier ordered the Otter, along with several transport ships carrying light infantry, to sail into the Chesapeake and engage the enemy. The Americans had a small fleet of smaller ships, a shipyard, and a few small forts in the area, but nothing that was really capable of challenging a fleet of this size. The smaller American ships retreated up the James River, where the shallower water would not allow the larger British warships to pursue. Collier transferred to the smaller Rainbow in an attempt to move upriver, but could not move even the smaller ships far enough upriver to engage with the fleeing Americans. Giving up the chase, Collier then transferred to a smaller ship to reconnoiter the area and survey the enemy forts. The American fort, later known as Fort Nelson, guarded the shipyard at Portsmouth, Virginia. It was relatively small, but with solid defensive walls and cannons. Collier and Matthew agreed to take the fort through a joint operation. The Rainbow would fire at the fort from the river while the army attacked it from the land. The defending garrison of about a hundred men, commanded by Major Thomas Matthews, saw the soldiers deploy and opted to abandon the fort rather than put up a fight. The Americans fled, leaving behind their cannons and ammunition. So the British took the fort without any fight. Later in the day, they occupied the town of Portsmouth, which was less than a mile from the fort. On the opposite shore sat Norfolk and Virginia's largest shipyard. Again, the American defenders fled without a fight at the sight of the large British warships. Collier occupied the shipyard. To avoid capture, the Americans burned a complete 28-gun ship that had been ready for launch. They also destroyed two large French merchant ships loaded with tobacco and other supplies. Despite that destruction, the British were astonished at the quantity of naval stores that the Americans had abandoned. They found eight more warships under construction, containing between 14 and 36 guns, which they destroyed. There were also multiple merchant vessels and smaller boats, totaling 137 ships and boats, which the British destroyed, along with tobacco, tar, and other supplies stored in the warehouses. Next, the fleet moved on to Suffolk, where the British again occupied the town without a fight, finding 9,000 barrels of salted pork, which had been designated to ship north to the Continental Army. They also seized 8,000 barrels of pitch, tar, and turpentine, along with other stores. 
again, the British raiders burned everything, along with another seven vessels that could not escape them. About this time, the Otter returned from its raid to the northern Chesapeake, having found equal success in capturing or destroying large amounts of stores. Although the fleet was under orders not to burn private homes, apparently some of the privateers had gotten carried away and burned a few homes that they believed to be owned by patriots. In response, Collier sent a captured ship laden with salt to provide compensation to the victims who had lost their homes. Collier also reported that he received a note of thanks along with a gift of six lambs in thanks for his act of kindness to the victims. One item of property that the British were not reluctant to seize was slaves. Collier reported taking aboard 256 men, 135 women, and 127 children collected from area plantations. Later, Patriot leaders would claim the British took three times that number and sold the slaves in the West Indies. The British commander denied this and said he was giving asylum to oppressed people who wished to leave. There is some evidence that the British raiders went to great efforts to collect whole families and to reunite family members who had been separated to different plantations. It seems clear that the slaves left quite voluntarily and did everything they could to assist the British effort. At one point, the Americans sent a delegation under a flag of truce. They had a note signed by Governor Patrick Henry seeking the return of four slaves taken from a local landowner. The British commander concluded that these men must have been sent as spies for using a flag of truce over such a trivial matter. He informed the delegation that he would respect their flag of truce and allowed them to return, but that they should never try to abuse the practice of a flag of truce again. The Virginians never put up any sort of resistance. The British continued their destruction unhampered by any attacks. Collier and Matthews concluded that, if they remained, they might perhaps convince much of the local populace to swear allegiance to the king and to bring the area under outright royal control again. Having completed what destruction they could, there was some debate about whether they should continue to occupy Portsmouth in order to deny use of the ports to the enemy. The British could still carry off many shiploads of valuable stores and prevent the enemy from shipping supplies to the Continental Army. They sent a messenger ship to New York to ask General Clinton. Before they could receive a response, though, they opted to leave. The British set fire to the remainder of stores that they couldn't carry. Collier estimated that they had destroyed at least one million pounds sterling worth of supplies in their raid. By May 24th, the fleet weighed anchor and began its voyage back to New York. For the British, the raid was considered an unqualified success. They had destroyed tons of enemy supplies and did not lose a single man. As the British returned to New York, Virginia was left to clean up the mess that they had left behind. Although there was a great deal of damage, the raid had lasted less than three weeks. Given the hardships of war, Virginia's damage was not even close to what some other states had experienced. The British Chesapeake raids also happened to coincide with the same time that Virginia was getting ready to select a new governor. For the first three years of the war, Patrick Henry had served as governor. 
Henry is probably best known for his fiery speeches before the war. As a radical member of the House of Burgesses, he allegedly responded to charges that his speeches amounted to treason against the king by proclaiming, give me liberty or give me death. Henry had led the effort to seize the colony's arsenal just before the Battle of Lexington and in leading the effort to expel the colonial Lord Dunmore from the colony. Henry had served in the First Continental Congress in 1774 and returned to the Second Continental Congress in 1775. He then returned to Virginia, where he played a leading role at the Virginia Convention that established independence and created the new state government. Henry worked on the committee that created the new state constitution, which the convention adopted unanimously on June 29, 1776, less than a week before the Continental Congress declared its own independence. The new constitution called for a governor chosen by both houses of the legislature who could be elected to three consecutive one-year terms. The convention had chosen Patrick Henry, who took office on July 5th, becoming the independent state's first governor. He moved into the colonial governor's mansion in Williamsburg and led Virginia through the first years of the war. Now, Henry's terms of office were focused on prosecution of the war and were not without controversy. During his first term, leaders seriously debated making him dictator in order to further the war effort. This proposal was eventually defeated. Governor Henry also sided with Washington and played a key role in exposing the Conway cabal. Henry had developed another connection to Washington when he married Dorothea Dandridge in 1777, a cousin of Martha Dandridge Custis Washington. In response to the 1779 raid, Henry had attempted to call up a militia army, but they were too slow to respond. The British departed before the militia could even assemble. The legislature had already re-elected Henry twice, so that he was at the end of his third one-year term during the British raids in 1779. By June 1779, after the British had left, he was term-limited, and Virginia had to select a new governor. Given the recent British raids, some legislators thought it would be appropriate to keep Henry in office to continue the state's defense despite the constitutional term limits. Henry cut short that discussion by sending a letter to the legislature, making clear his attempt to retire at the end of his term. Henry would return to the Virginia Assembly. He received an offer to return to the Continental Congress, but he declined that invitation. On June 1, 1779, the Virginia Assembly elected a new governor. The vote was contentious, but a majority backed Thomas Jefferson, who assumed office in July. It was a pretty close vote, though. Nearly half of the assembly wanted General Thomas Nelson. The state militia officer had served in the Continental Congress, where he assisted in the drafting of the Articles of Confederation. He had also played a key role in Virginia's Constitutional Convention and had been serving on the Council of State. The vote had to go to a second round after Lieutenant Governor John Page, who ran a distant third, but took enough votes in the first round to prevent any of the three candidates from receiving a majority. Jefferson had largely stepped back from politics before his election. After completing the Declaration of Independence, 
Jefferson started asking to be replaced at the Continental Congress. The only reason he stayed for several months longer was that the rest of the Virginia delegation had already gone home, and he had to stay in Philadelphia to make sure the state had some representation. Congress wanted him to go to France to serve as a commissioner, but Jefferson also declined that offer. So by the fall of 1776, Jefferson had returned home and had taken a seat in the Virginia House of Delegates. There, he left the war issues to others and focused on legislative reforms, estate law, property rights, court reforms, things like that. Some of it was controversial, especially some of the reforms which removed protections that helped the elite planters keep their estates when they fell on hard times. Jefferson also drafted the Bill of Religious Freedom, but it would take nearly a decade for that one to become law. Jefferson had spent most of 1777 and 78 focusing on his home life, having a child, and rebuilding his home at Monticello. British prisoners from Saratoga had settled around his home in Charlottesville, and the Jeffersons spent considerable time with some of the enemy officers, particularly General Baron von Redesel and his wife. Jefferson was well regarded in the assembly, which is why they elected him governor, but he did not seem particularly interested in the new job. Although he nominally held a rank as a militia colonel, Jefferson was not a military man. The recent raid on the Chesapeake might have led many to consider a leader with more military experience, but they chose Jefferson. While Jefferson attended to his duties as governor, he seemed to view it as more of a burden that kept him away from home. He was forced to focus on issues of war that did not seem to suit his interests or experience. Even so, Jefferson would complete his one-year term and be elected to a second term a year later. Next week, we're going to look in on the Continental Congress again, where inflation threatens to collapse the economy and harm the war effort. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks, as always, to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, 
Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter Lee Seam. I also offer thanks to Claire Ensor for a one-time gift via PayPal. I really appreciate everyone who can pitch in to support this podcast and help me cover my expenses. I also wanted to mention that I'm going to do a live podcast event in Quakertown, Pennsylvania on October 23rd. I'm going to be at the grand opening of the Liberty & Co. store on Broad Street. See my website for more details. But if you can make it to the store at noon on October 23rd, you can appear on my podcast, ask questions, and chat live with me on the show. Hope to see you there. This week, the British launched the first of what would become a series of raids into Virginia. As the British moved into their southern strategy, they wanted to weaken Virginia and keep the state from sending men and supplies to the other colonies, the Carolinas and Georgia. Repeated raids meant that the Virginians had to remain in Virginia and on alert against those raids. The British naval commander of this first raid, George Collier, returned to England a few months afterward. He met with the king, who praised his activity. In response, Collier told the king that the war was unwinnable under current policies, and that was not taken particularly well, as you might guess. Collier, however, continued to serve in the European theater and helped with the relief of Gibraltar. He would go on to become a full admiral in the 1790s, when Britain once again went to war with France. The army commander on this raid, Edward Matthew, also returned to England the year following the raid. He ended up being redeployed to the West Indies and ended up as governor of Granada. Like most royal governorships, the position paid pretty well. Unfortunately, the king forgot to approve his pay and passed that along to the Treasury Department. As a result of that oversight, the government later came after Matthew's estate once he died, and forced them to pay back over 23,000 pounds sterling to the government. So, if you ever get a really cushy government job, make sure the paperwork gets filled out correctly. General Matthew also had one child, a daughter, who married a man named James Austin. As a result, James's sister, Jane Austen, knew General Matthew, and many have noted that one of Jane Austen's characters a fellow named General Tilney, who appeared in her novel Northanger Abbey, bears a very strong resemblance to General Matthew. This week, I also noted the transition in Virginia from Governor Patrick Henry to Governor Thomas Jefferson. Henry is probably best known for his fiery speeches before the war began, the whole give me liberty or give me death thing. However, He was also pretty successful as governor in the early part of the war and played a key role in a number of important issues. After the war, his opposition to the U.S. Constitution tended to put him out of favor with much of the leadership, and his importance tends to fade rather quickly. If you want to read more about Patrick Henry's life, there are a number of good biographies, but my recommendation this week is Lion of Liberty. Patrick Henry and the Call to a New Nation, by Harlow Giles Unger. It's a good look at the whole life of a man that we remember primarily for a few catchy phrases that helped move the colonies toward revolution. Unger was a journalist for most of his life, but about 20 years ago, after retiring from journalism, he began writing a series of biographies on various founders, 
or on founding events. By my count, he's written at least 17. Despite the fact that he is now over the age of 90, he still seems to be writing. His book, Lion of Liberty, came out in 2010. It's not too long for a biography, at just under 300 pages, not counting notes and index. It's well-written and a succinct look at an often overlooked life of a founding father. My online recommendation this week focuses on the incoming governor, Thomas Jefferson. Of course, we all know about Thomas Jefferson's role with the Declaration of Independence, as a diplomat to France, and of course as the third president of the United States. His time between writing the Declaration and the time he left for France after the war ended, however, is largely forgotten. He held a number of different government positions, probably the most significant being the governor for two years. The Encyclopedia of Virginia, which is an online resource, has a great article on Jefferson's two terms as governor. Those terms are generally considered not terribly successful. Jefferson was replaced by Thomas Nelson, who had more military experience and who ended up serving as governor during the Yorktown campaign. If you want to read more about Jefferson's terms as governor, you can go to encyclopediavirginia.org and search for it, or you can just use the link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week is, what would have happened if Britain had kept fighting trying to win the American Revolutionary War in North America after Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown? Well, this question is getting a little ahead of our story, so be prepared for some spoiler alerts. By 1780 or so, even before the loss at Yorktown, the war had been raging for over six years, and virtually all political support for the war had evaporated in London. The war had spread to other parts of the world, fighting France, Spain, and the Netherlands. It was costing a lot of money, it wasn't showing any terrible success, and people were growing generally unhappy with it. The government had held elections in 1774, just before the war began. In that election, the pro-war faction, led by Lord North, won an overwhelming majority. That government remained in power for the maximum of six years. In 1780, the prime minister was required by law to hold new elections. And in that case, Lord North's coalition held on, but just barely, with 50.6% of the seats in Parliament. Much of North's loss in popularity was due to the cost of the war in America and the fact that many promises of success there had proven so wrong. Debt was growing and there was no end in sight. Only the active advocacy of King George himself kept the war going and kept the North government in power. Lord North himself was really growing weary of the war and had asked to resign several times, only to have the king reject his offer of resignation. The king knew that any replacement for Lord North was going to mean the end of the war. The loss at Yorktown in 1781 shattered even that tenuous support for the continuing the war. Parliament was absolutely determined to end the war at that point, even if it meant recognizing the independence of the United States. The only way the war could have continued after Yorktown is if the king somehow tried to override Parliament, which likely would have resulted at some point in the king losing even more political power. 
British fighting in America would have only continued to go badly for the British. If the fighting had continued, the Americans might even have invaded Canada again. Spain was still eager to recapture Gibraltar and Menorca. France was still circling several more British island colonies in the West Indies, as well as parts of India. Britain was also having trouble borrowing more money to cover its war expenses and had to pay increasingly higher interest rates. Continuing the war would have driven up taxes even more, something Parliament was unwilling to do, and risked other parts of the British Empire falling into enemy hands. In short, Britain could not have continued the war without risking even greater losses. Even if the king had been foolish enough to push for it despite all the opposition, it might have even led to an overthrow of the monarchy. Even the king realized that he did not have the support to continue. The only thing that really delayed the war's end for another year and a half was the attempt to negotiate better terms in exchange for recognizing American independence. If you have a question that you would like me to address on the podcast, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or contact me on social media. I'm active on Twitter with the handle at Amrev. We have a Facebook group and a Facebook page, and you can also reach out to me on Quora. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.